Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. study Sunday. Um, so tonight is, it's always a special night here on Sunday nights, uh, but tonight, um, sort of a very special night, I'm going to be talking the whole night about Avilokiteshvara. Yay! Um, <laughs> yeah, yay. Um, I will be reading part of a sutra and be talking about a sutra, so this is still Sutra Study Sunday. Um, but I sort of, there's a lot of reasons why this came up. Um, and I'm going to talk about how we got here to talk about this from our last couple of classes on the Vimalakirti Sutra. It may seem like these two are like two, two polar ends of the spectrum of Buddhism, but actually they're really, really one and the same. Um, in order to really, full, not fully appreciate, but to really appreciate the sutra I'm going to read, we need to understand the meaning of the name of this bodhisattva. And just because there's a few new folks tonight, we may need to talk about what a bodhisattva is. Do we need to talk about what a bodhisattva is? Nobody. Everybody's good with bodhisattva. All right. Yay. Um, so we're talking about a particular bodhisattva tonight, Avilokiteshvara. And in order to really appreciate the sutra, we need to understand the name, what it means, like some depth of the name, because in many ways the sutra is, it's not about the name, but if you don't understand the name, you won't really get the full impact of the sutra. Um, so let's just start. Um, this is what, what, something that really um, kind of inspired the class tonight was the center's edition of this beautiful statue. This is Avilokiteshvara, if you didn't know. One version, incarnation. We'll talk about uh, this particular version of Avilokiteshvara. We'll talk about that in a second. This is also Avilokiteshvara, uh, the smaller one there with the knee up. Uh, maybe, well, we'll leave those there. But um, And there used to be another Avilokiteshvara in here, but now there's just those two. All right, there used to be a very big one, sort of similar to this one over there. Um, I really, I, I really wouldn't be exaggerating if I said that Avilokiteshvara is the most popular bodhisattva. Potentially even the most popular Buddhist deity, the word deity here is, you know, in scare quotes, it's not quite the right word. But even more so than a lot of Buddhas, Amitabha Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, in many ways, Avilokiteshvara is even more popular, more significant than the Buddhas. Um, Avilokiteshvara is known as the Bodhisattva of compassion. So sort of insofar as these Bodhisattvas represent qualities, so insofar as they are representations of qualities, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara embodies or represents compassion in these various forms. Um, a pretty early um, character to appear in the world of Buddhist art and iconography. Definitely you'll see images of Avilokiteshvara 
uh, BC from the world before the common era, so at least 2,000 years old, easily. Um, traditionally, or those, it's usually said that there's a, where is it? There's a, some, a being called Padmapani, the lotus bearer, which is a standing figure, usually doing kind of some real hippie kind of gesture. <laughs> and holding a, a lotus flower. That's the oldest, earliest version of Avilokiteshvara, just kind of a, a hippie figure holding a lotus flower. And that incarnation of Avilokiteshvara is called Padmapani, the lotus bearer, okay? Uh, but let's get more into Avilokiteshvara. A lot of... Um, debate about the meaning of this word, and so we're going to dive in for a moment. Um, the root of it, the really interesting root of this word is, and this is where we're going to start, is Ishvara. So the, the end of this, Avilokiteshvara, Ishvara, the end of this, Ishvara, is a old idea in Indian thinking, in what, what is called yoga, Indian meditation, way predates Buddhism, the Buddha, and all of that. And there's this idea of, whew, usually it's translated as the Lord, it is certainly a sense of divinity, a deity, um, There's a lot I could talk about Ishvara. One thing I want to mention, if you don't know, sort of, um, it's after the Buddha, but it comes from a time before the Buddha. There's a, a book called the Yoga Sutras. <clears throat> so the, the word sutra, of course, we know, so Yoga Sutras, but these are not Buddhist sutras. They're from a guy named... Uh, Patanjali, Patanjali, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. This guy, Patanjali, Indian uh, meditator, yogi, uh, he put together these uh, sutras, right? A uh, discourse on a topic on yoga. And these Yoga Sutras embodied a form of practice, what we would call Ashtanga Yoga or Royal Yoga. Patanjali kind of put systematized this way of doing yoga. But this way of doing yoga predates the Buddha. It's like we don't even know how old the system is. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are only from like maybe six or 700 AD, so after the Buddha. But the system they embody or represent kind of predates the Buddha. So there's a lot of crossover between the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and Buddhism. Uh, Patanjali has these kind of uh, six steps, six meditation steps. Um, and a lot of this, well, I, again, I, don't, I can't go too deep into this, but there's a lot of parallels between the two if you get into it. One of, just one of the practices of the Yoga Sutras is something called uh, Ishvara Pranidhana. And it is this very important part of the traditional yoga practice of surrendering yourself to the Lord like the Lord of this world, there's a notion that there is a, a divine being that sort of um, 
oversees this world of sorts. This is where it gets tricky. It depends on who you talk to. If you're referring to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the Upanishads or the Vedas, it's all a little different about who or what Ishvara is. But there's definitely this notion of the practice in here of the Yoga Sutras is a kind of surrendering, an Islam, if you will, a surrendering of yourself and your will to Ishvara. Now, there's lots of gods and lords in Indian mythology or Indian thinking. There's uh, uh, Vishnu, the creator of this world, Brahma, the sustainer of this world, Shiva, the destroyer of this world. I have seen often uh, Shiva and Ishvara are like, maybe they're the same thing. Because another name for Shiva is Maheshvara, and there's a lot of similarities. So the thing about Ishvara is that there is a notion, though, that this Lord, this divine being, is somehow you, like your Parusha, your like more deeper, intimate, uh, true self. And so when you surrender yourself to this God, this Lord, you're sort of surrendering to your higher self. Not necessarily a div- God or a divinity, but then in some other schools, no, no, Ishvara is actually Shiva and you need to really actually bow down to Shiva, like the God. So it goes any, any which way. Everybody follow me on this? And this is, this is just a, a pre-Buddhist idea that I want to show you how Buddhism sort of, oh, that's an interesting idea. And so the, this Ishvara, the Lord, now becomes this being that the Buddhists call Avilokiteshvara. So Avilokiteshvara is, so, Ava is, just look downward, and the lok, L-O-K, is to look. And the traditional etymology of this word is the Lord or the God that looks down upon. That is the kind of traditionally accepted etymology for Avilokiteshvara, the Lord that looks down upon. The notion being that there, this is like the Lord that looks down upon this world, oversees everything that's going on in it, is aware of everything that's going on in it, all of that. However, uh, so just know that this is the Bodhisattva of compassion. That's going to factor into this. You should know, though, that this, this, this deity, this being, this Bodhisattva, um, moved into, through Afghanistan. This, the cult of Avalokiteshvara was very big in Afghanistan, or what is today called Afghanistan. That sort of Mahayana cult to Avalokiteshvara moves through Central Asia, and eventually this cult to Avalokiteshvara enters China. And in China, they call this being... Guan Shi Yin. 
which means this means to in Chinese this means to look but not just to see it's actually like to perceive the world or this is the world shi means world this world and yin is a sound so perceiver world's sound perceiver of the world's sounds that is the way the Chinese translated Avalokiteshvara. So literally, they took the, uh, ah, I'll share something else. So they translated it as Guan Shi Yin, and this is as early as 300 AD, 200 AD, easily. The Chinese are translating Avalokiteshvara into Guan Shi Yin hearer world sounds. And this sound, even though this Chinese character is very broad, yin, yin just means sounds, but it usually is understood to be crying, or the cries, the hearer of the world sighing, or hearer of the world's cries. So what happens is, is there's sort of a, not a debate of any sort, but a kind of a realization that this originally was probably actually, and it's in Sanskrit, very slight difference, avilokitasvara. And if you do this, <clears throat> all of a sudden, how does this work? So what happens is, ah, that's what happens. There's another way in Sanskrit that if it's avilokitasvara, this lok here becomes the lok of lokadatu, the world system. If you remember our lokadatu, so this is loka, and the, the asvara are sounds. So it becomes sort of downwardly, it's tricky, it's tricky because this can still mean see and it has a double meaning when it's like this where it's like seeing the world's sounds. So basically there's a presumption that actually the understanding that it's uh, lowered the books down is not the real meaning and that the Chinese knew all along what the real meaning of it was, which is something like the, 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 hearer. the hearer of the world's sounds, hearer of the world's cryings and that has more relationship to this idea of being the bodhisattva of compassion. Any questions? <laughs> That's just to know what that word means and what, where it comes from. Avi Um Yeah, please. Wait. You go ahead. So are you saying basically like in the translation, the Chinese were undeifying It would seem so. Like intentionally? That's where it's like, who knows? Who knows? Um, I think the point that I would like to make, because of what I want to read, is that Sanskrit is sort of a, a very wild, beautiful language because things can have multiple meanings in this way that this, the way the look, look and the way this functions is that they can kind of be bleeding into meaning both 
things. And so the idea that Avilokiteshvara, the name, could mean multiple things at one time is more in, in line with the nature of this bodhisattva, more in line with this figure, actually, this Ekadasa Mukha Sahasra Buddha Sahasra Netra. 11-headed, thousand-armed, thousand-eyed Avilokiteshvara. Ekadasha Mukha Sahasra Buddha Sahasra Netra Avilokiteshvara. An arm for every syllable. Basically. <laughs> so that's the, that version here, 11 heads, thousand arms, eyes, thousand eyes, is called that. Uh, Padmapani is this earliest one, lotus bearer. Avilokiteshvara is sometimes just called Lokeshvara. And in, when, it's, when the being is called Lokeshvara, there is no um, uh, doubt that it means Lord of the World. Loka, that's our Lokadatu, and Ishvara, Lokeshvara, the Lord of the World. So that's where it's sort of like. I don't think they were abandoning the original meaning of Ishvara as Lord and all of that, but I think they were trying to combine meanings and be poetic in that way, it seems to me. And if you read the poetry of it, especially the thing I'm about to read, the, the metaphor of hearing the world is in there. And so they are playing with the notion that this being's name means hearer of the world's sounds or something like that. So, Lord of the World, Lotus Holder, 11 or 11 headed, thousand arm, thousand eyed. In Tibetan, this uh, being is very popular, Chenrez or something like that. I do not know Tibetan at all. Very guttural, crazy language, but it's something to that effect. And Chenrezig is a uh, Tibetanization of Avalokiteshvara. Canon in Japanese. Uh, what happens here is Guan Shi Yin. The Chinese sort of love binomials, where it's just two characters, so they have a tendency to drop this. And this being in Chinese just becomes known as Guan Yin, just Guan Yin, so hearer of sounds. You know, the Chinese, Chinese is beautiful. They, they do this thing where it's, if something has four characters, they'll drop it down to three, and then as soon as you get that, they'll drop it down to two, and then as soon as you know that Guan Yin means Avilokiteshvara, they'll just start using Guan. And then what's crazy is, is that eventually, once you know that we're referring to Guan, they'll just start doing that, which is the initial part of the character for it. So the Chinese love this idea of like, as soon as you get what we're talking about, we're gonna just drop it and just start using these representations of it. And then they'll start taking those representations and combine, I mean, it gets crazy, it's really mystical. Guanyin in Japanese, these, this character and this character in Japanese are pronounced kanon, kanon. Uh, that's probably about the extent of all the names. You should know that Chenrezig, the Tibetan version, is usually four arms full lotus position, uh, two will be in the center holding a sintamani, a wish-fulfilling jewel, and then two arms out, one holding a rosary, and one holding a 
maybe a flower. I forget what's in the fourth arm. But Chenrezig kind of has four arms. So if you ever see this four-armed being, that's the Tibetan Avivakiteshvara. Um, da, da, da. Any questions before I read a little sutra? Is, do you know what the name of Chenrezig is? Yeah, it's Avilokiteshvara. It's like, oh yeah, they went on the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the here, which one was it? It was the um, seeing, this one is more of the seeing over the world, looking over the world. Yeah, this one of Avilokiteshvara as the Lord that looks down does seem to have play. That does seem to be what the name meant at a certain point. But again, there's this shifting that the Chinese picked up on and they went with the sound of hearing the sounds. But, yeah. Yep. Ishvara or Svara, yeah. Svara is connected to Svahaya or in relation, secondly, how it's become sound and Ishvara sound. Ah, right, right. That connection. Yes, uh, that I don't know. I cannot give you the entire etymology. I will tell you, interestingly, that Ishvara, Ishvara, Vara means um, the good or the noble or the beautiful. And Ish is... Um, uh, claim to have or to hold. And so Ishvara originally meant the holder of the beautiful or the holder of the noble. And it's sort of, I mean, you could get really Nietzschean on this if you read the genealogy of morality. There's a very interesting thing going on here where Ishvara was both a name for nobility, meaning the people with the nice clothes and all of that, and then this idea of God as the holder of that good, and that's Ishvara, that's the origin of that word. I don't know how it, the sound part of it works, though. My Sanskrit isn't that good. But that's just breaking down what Ishvara means, which we can't go too, too far into breaking this stuff down. Yeah? Uh, where are the thousand eyes on the eleven-headed On the hands. On the hands. Yeah, so if you notice that symbolism of that, yeah. And which culture? So you first see the 11-headed in sort of Nepalese, northern Indian, even Central Asia, Kashmir, that area. The Chinese love the uh, thousand-armed 11-headed for a while, but then it seems to have kind of freaked them out. And so they, the Chinese, love the uh, Mother Mary type of Guanyin. So you should know that this, uh, this kind of Avilokiteshvara with the uh, one knee up is a pretty kind of popular one for her. In that one, she has the vase. And this is a popular one. Standing or seated, she'll have the vase. And she pour, pours out, um, it's called Amrita. Amrita. Amrita is fascinating because there's this word, Rita. Rita is like a, a, you know, like a divine law or a principle that's at work. It's sort of like Rita is this 
cosmic law that sort of, it makes the seasons go in their proper order. It makes things grow up and then die and go down. It makes everything happen the right way. It's like the, the law of the universe. That's Rita. But there's something that you can drink called Amrita. Amrita is an elixir of immortality. It breaks the rules of Rita. It's Amrita. It's like anti-Rita. That's kind of what it, Amrita means. And what's really interesting is that this is where the Greeks got the word and the idea for ambrosia from. The word ambrosia comes from Amrita, this divine elixir that in the Buddhist tradition, Guan Yin pours out. And it's kind of like the compassion, the elixir of immortality, things like that. So the Chinese like that version. And then this version becomes, I've been looking for the first origin of it, but there is a very popular version of Avilokiteshvara where she is standing, white gown, and has a baby. And you would think it was Mary and the, the, the Christ child. It's like, so again, I've been looking for the or, earliest origin of that image to know if it's like, are they just trying to say like, oh yeah, Mary and Jesus, that's Avilokiteshvara. Or like, who knows? So you should know that there is a version of Avilokiteshvara totally feminine. Well, that's the thing I didn't mention. Is Avilokiteshvara male or female? Uh, I'm going to read the sutra that's going to answer that, but just know that the gender or sex or whatever of Avilokiteshvara is totally variable. Um, in the East Asian tradition, so starting basically from um, Tibet over to Japan, Avilokiteshvara is female, like period. There's almost like no debate about this. In India, Avilokiteshvara was definitely male. Most versions have, he has a little like mustache, the whole thing. However, as in the sutra that I'm about to read a little bit from, it's clear that Avilokiteshvara, you don't even know, you can't put your finger on Avilokiteshvara to say one thing or another. What happens though is that there's a story about Avilokiteshvara developing what, it, what is known as the divine ear. It's one of the supernatural powers. And upon developing the divine ear, was able to hear all the crying of the world. That's how supposedly he, she, it got its name. Hearer of the world's crying is from developing this divine ear and hearing everybody crying at once. And sort of this overwhelming of compassion for all beings. Upon that moment of hearing the crying of the world, supposedly shed 33 tears, and those tears sprung lotus flowers, upon which were seated another bodhisattva called Tara. And there are green, there was a green Tara and a white Tara and a red Tara and a blue Tara and actually 33 different Taras, different sort of energy signatures or something of Avilokiteshvara. All the Taras are female. If you read either of these books, this is a great book on sort of the history of Avilokiteshvara. This is a whole book just on Tara. If you read either of these books, they will tell you the same thing which is that it seems that the cult of Tara with its female form 
came to China, but they thought it was Avila Gateshvar. And so the oh. Chinese and Japanese, they imagine Avila Gateshvar as female, but because they were actually misunderstanding Tara. That's what these books sort of claim. Historically, that sort of lines up. Okay. Any questions about Avila Gateshvar? Where he comes from? He, she, it. Compassion, Thousand Arms. Um, no. The baby. The, the baby. baby. So is the baby, is, that's not then a version or one of the incarnations of Tara. No. That is going to definitely be Avila Gateshvara. And it's complicated because the Chinese know that they're not talking about Tara. They know they're talking about Avila Gateshvara, but it's just that for some reason the Chinese imagine Avila Gateshvara is only female even though it clearly has many, many forms. And so again, these kind of scholarly books just argue that they were mistaking imagery of Tara. But really, Tara is just an incarnation of Avila Kiteshvara, or the tears, you know, it's all very, um, they're all bound up in the same idea of compassion in that way. All right, anything? A little, little story time? Great, so now you'll know. Um, oh, but I got it, uh, okay. One more thing, the title of this, so important. So important. So this, I mentioned last week uh, that I was interested in these Dharma doors. Um, and we had read the Vimalakirti Sutra in which there was a couple of Dharma doors. And so I went looking for Dharma doors. Um, and I found a bunch of different ones that I wanted to do. And this one is called All right, so it gets tricky. Uh, this character here, Mun, it's pronounced Mun, is supposedly the actual picture of a gated, like a Chinese gated entrance. It's supposedly what it's supposed to be a picture of. So it's a gate, but it is a translation of Pryaya. And so there are these Dharma Pryayas, Dharma doors. And um, we're going to be talking about Dharma doors for a couple weeks, so I don't want to like get too into it. But somebody asked last week, like, is it a is it a doorway you enter to get to the Dharma, or is the doorway the Dharma? That's what we're here to explore. So there is in the Lotus Sutra the famous chapter twenty-five called the Universal Gateway, the Universal. Per Prayaya, the Vashva, Vashva Prayaya, universal gateway. Now, whether this is a Dharma gateway or not, we can hold off on that. But I do want to talk at the end of this, after I read this, of what this might mean. What are we talking about? Universal gateway. And so this chapter of the Lotus Sutra is called the universal gateway, the universal doorway manifested by Avilokiteshvara. So this is a uh, potentially a Dharma door, definitely a doorway, 
a universal doorway or gateway that is opened by Avilokiteshvara. This chapter 25 is often its own little tiny sutra. So this is, uh, you know, you get these in, I got this in what, Taiwan, I think. Uh, so this is just this chapter, but they consider basically its own little sutra. It has the little thousand-armed uh, bodhisattva there, and it's the whole sutra. It's not very long. Pass it around if you'd like to look at it. Um, so it's a, this section of the Lotus Sutra is sometimes just extracted, and it's called the Avilokiteshvara Sutra. It's just Avilokiteshvara Sutra. You should know, though, that it comes from the Lotus Sutra. Um, and one last thing before I start. This is Burton Watson's translation of the Lotus Sutra. I love Burton Watson's translation. He does this interesting thing where like, sometimes he chooses to translate bodhisattva's names by what they mean, and sometimes he just translates it, or he doesn't translate it, so it'll just be the Sanskrit. And this is a problem in translating Buddhist things, whether you say... Bodhisattva perceiver of the world sounds, which is what he does. He literally lays out what the word means. Or there's other parts where it'll be Bodhisattva Manjushri. Manjushri means beautiful youth, but rarely do you see Bodhisattva beautiful youth. It's always just Manjushri. So it's this complicated thing about names, how you know, all of our names mean things right, but do we know that? Do we think consciously about what they mean? Or is it just sound? Michael, is it just the sound? Names, all language is weird. Names are weird like that. Uh, about, right, everybody's sitting there going, oh my God. Like, so, because I just went through such, the reason why I went to such lengths to explain what Avilokiteshvara means is because I want to just say Avilokiteshvara. As far as I understand, Sanskrit, Buddhism, mantras, dharamis, and all of that, these words have power. The sound of these things have power. It's good to know that it means hearer, perceiver of the world sounds, but you should know that I am about to attempt to strategically replace Avilokiteshvara with all of the perceiver of the world sounds. Okay. Um, okay. Everybody good? Uh, the universal gateway of the Bodhisattva, Avilokiteshvara. So at that time, the Bodhisattva Akashyamati immediately rose from his seat, bared his right shoulder, pressed his palms together, and facing the Buddha, spoke these words. World honored one, this Bodhisattva, Avilokiteshvara, why is he called Avilokiteshvara? The Buddha said to Bodhisattva Akashyamati, Good man, suppose there are immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of living beings who are undergoing various trials and suffering. If they hear of this Bodhisattva, Avilokiteshvara, and single-mindedly call his name, then at once he will perceive the sound of their voices, and they will all gain deliverance from their trials." If someone holding fast to the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara should enter a great fire, the fire could not burn him. This would come about because of this Bodhisattva's authority and supernatural powers. 
If one were washed away by a great flood and called upon his name, one would immediately find himself in a shallow place. Suppose there were a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million living beings who, seeking for gold, silver, lapis lazuli, seashell, agate, coral, amber, pearls, and all other rare treasures, set out on the great sea. And suppose a fierce wind should blow their ship off course, and it drifted to the land of Rakshasa demons. If among those people there is even just one who calls the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, then all those people will be delivered from their troubles with the Rakshasas. This is why he is called Avilokiteshvara. If a person who faces imminent threat of attack should call the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, then the swords and staves wielded by his attackers would instantly shatter into so many pieces that he would be rescued and delivered. Though enough yakshasas and rakshasas to fill all the thousand million-fold world should try to come and torment a person, if they hear him calling the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, then these evil demons will not even be able to look at him with their evil eyes, much less do him harm. Suppose there is a person, whether guilty or not, who has had his body imprisoned in fetters and chains, shackles and locks. If he calls the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, then all his bonds will be severed and broken, and at once he will gain freedom. Suppose in a place filled with all the evil-hearted bandits of the thousand-million-fold world, there is a merchant, a merchant leader who is guiding a band of merchants carrying valuable treasures over a steep and dangerous road. And that one man, and that one man shouts out these words, Good men, don't be afraid. You must single-mindedly call on the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara. This bodhisattva can grant fearlessness to living beings. If you call his name, you will be delivered from these evil-hearted bandits. When the band of merchants hear this, they all together raise their voices, saying, Hail to the bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara. And because they call his name, they are at once able to gain deliverance. Akshyamati, the authority of supernatural power of the bodhisattva and mahasattva Avilokiteshvara are as mighty as this. If there should be living beings beset by numerous lusts and cravings, let them think with constant reverence of the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, and then they can shed their desires. If they have great wrath and hatred, let them think with constant reverence of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, and then they can have and then they can shed their hatred and their ire. If they have great ignorance and stupidity, let them think with constant reverence of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, and they can rid themselves of ignorance. Akshyamati, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, possesses great authority and supernatural powers, as I have just described, and I can, and can confer many benefits. For this reason, living beings should constantly keep the thought of him in mind. If a woman wishes to give birth to a male child, she should offer obeisance and alms to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, and then she will bear a son blessed with, mer- blessed with merit, virtue, and wisdom. And if she wishes to bear a daughter, she will bear one with all the marks of beauty, one who is in the past planted numerous good roots and is loved and respected by many people. Akshimati, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, has the power to do all this. If there are living beings who pay respect and obeisance to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, their good fortune will not be fleeting or in vain. Therefore, living beings should all accept and uphold the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara. Akshimati, Suppose there, suppose there is a person who accepts and upholds the names of as many bodhisattvas as there are sands in 62 million Ganges rivers. 
and for as long as his present body lasts, he offers them alms in the form of food and drink, clothing, bedding, and medicines. What is your opinion? Would this good man or this good woman gain many benefits, or would he not? Akshimati replied, they would be very many world-honored one. The Buddha said, suppose also that there is a person who accepts and upholds the name of Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara and even just once offers him obeisance and alms. The good fortune gained by these two persons would be exactly equal and without difference. For a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million kalpas, it would never be exhausted or run out. Akshimati, if one accepts and upholds the name of Bodhisattva Avelokiteshvara, he will gain the benefit of merit and virtue that is as, as immeasurable and boundless as this. Bodhisattva Akshimati said to the Buddha, World Honor One, Bodhisattva Avelokiteshvara, how does he come and go in the Saha world? How does he preach the Dharma for the sake of living beings? How does the power, how does the power of Upaya apply in his case? The Buddha said to the Bodhisattva Akshimati, Good man, if there are living beings in the land who need someone in the body of a Buddha in order to be saved, Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara immediately manifests himself in a Buddha body and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need someone in a self-enlightened being's body in order to be saved, immediately he manifests himself in a self-enlightened being's body and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a Shravaka to be saved, immediately he becomes a Shravaka and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a King Brahma to be saved, immediately he becomes a King Brahma and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a Lord Chakra to be saved, immediately he becomes Lord Chakra and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a heavenly being freedom to be saved, immediately he becomes the heavenly being freedom and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need the heavenly being great freedom to be saved, immediately he becomes the heavenly being great freedom and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a great general of heaven to be saved, immediately he becomes a great general of heaven and preaches the Dharma for them. If they need Vaishravana to be saved, immediately he becomes Vaishravana and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a petty king to be saved, immediately he becomes a petty king and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a rich man to be saved, immediately he becomes a rich man and preaches the law to them. If they need a householder to be saved, immediately he becomes a householder and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a chief minister to be saved, immediately becomes a chief minister and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a Brahma to be saved, immediately becomes a Brahma and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a monk, a nun, a layman, a believer, or a laywoman believer to be saved, immediately he becomes a monk, a nun, a layman believer, or a laywoman believer and preaches the Dharma for them. If they need the wife of a rich man, of a householder, a chief minister, or a Brahmin to be saved, immediately becomes the wives and, pre and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a young boy or a young girl to be saved, immediately becomes a young boy or a young girl that preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a heavenly being, a dragon, a yaksha, a gandharava, an asura, a garuda, a kimnara, a maharaga, a human or a non-human being to be saved, immediately becomes all of these and preaches the Dharma to them. If they need a Vajra-holding God to be saved, immediately he becomes a Vajra-holding God and preaches the Dharma for them. Akshimati, this Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara has succeeded in acquiring benefits such as these and taking on a variety of different forms goes about among the land saving living beings. For this reason, you and the others should single-mindedly offer alms to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara. This Bodhisattva Mahasattva Avilokiteshvara 
can bestow fearlessness on those who are in fear, in fearful, pressing, or difficult circumstances. That is why in this Saha world, everyone calls him the bestower of fearlessness. Bodhisattva Akshyamati said to the Buddha, World Honored One, now I must offer alms and obeisance to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara. Then he took from his neck a necklace adorned with numerous precious gems worth a hundred or a thousand teals of gold and presented it to the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara saying, Sir, please accept this necklace of precious gems as a gift in the Dharma. At that time, Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara was unwilling to accept the gift. Akshamati spoke once more to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, saying, Sir, please, out of compassion for us, please accept this necklace. Then the Buddha said to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, Out of compassion for this Bodhisattva Akashyamati and for the four kinds of believers, the heavenly beings, dragons, yakshas, gandharavas, asuras, garudas, kimnaras, maharagas, human and non-human beings, you should accept this necklace. <laughs> Thereupon, Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, having compassion for the four kinds of believers and the heavenly beings, dragons, human and non-human beings, and all the others, accepted the necklace and, dividing it into two parts, presented one part to Shakyamuni Buddha and presented the other to the Tower of the Buddha Many Treasures that had recently manifested itself in the story of the Lotus Sutra. The Buddha said, Akshamati, these are the kinds of freely exercised supernatural powers that Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara displays in his comings and goings in this Saha world. At that time, Bodhisattva Akshamati posed this question, the same question in verse form. World honored one, replete with wondrous features, I now ask you once again, for what reason that Buddha's son is named Avilokiteshvara? The honored one endowed with wonderful features replied to Akshamati in verse, saying, listen to the actions of Avilokiteshvara, how aptly he responds in various quarters. His vast oath is deep as the ocean. Kalpas pass, but it remains unfathomable. He has attended many thousands and millions of Buddhas, setting forth his great pure vow. I will describe him in brief for you. Listen to his name, observe his body, bear him in mind, not passing the time vainly, for he can wipe out the pains of existence. Suppose someone should conceive a wish to harm you, should push you into a great pit of fire. Think of the power of Avilokiteshvara, and the pit of fire will change into a pond. If you should be cast adrift on the vast ocean, menaced by dragons, fish, and various demons, think of the power of Avilokiteshvara, and the billows and waves shall not drown you. Suppose you are on the peak of Mount Simaru, and someone pushes you off. Think of the power of that Avilokiteshvara, and you will hang in midair like the sun. Suppose you are pursued by an evil man who wish to throw you down from a diamond mountain. Think on the power of Avilokiteshvara, and they cannot harm a hair on you. Suppose you are surrounded by evil-hearted bandits, each brandishing a knife to wound you. Think of the power of Avilokiteshvara, and at once all will be swayed by compassion. Suppose you encounter trouble with the king's law. Face punishment, about to forfeit your life. 
Think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and the executioner's sword will be broken into bits. Suppose you are imprisoned in shackles and locks, hands and feet bound by fetters and chains. Think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and they will fall off, leaving you free. Suppose with, with curses and various poisonous herbs, someone should try to injure you. Think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and the injury will rebound upon the originator. Suppose you encounter evil rakshasas, poisonous serpents, and various demons. Think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and then none of them will dare harm you. If evil beasts should encircle you, their sharp fangs and claws inspiring terror, think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and they will scamper away in boundless retreat. If lizards, snakes, vipers, scorpions threaten you with poisonous breath, that sears like flame, think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and hearing your voice, they will flee of themselves. If clouds should bring thunder and lightning strike, if hail pelts or drenching rain comes down, think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and at that moment, they will vanish away. If living beings encounter weariness or peril, immeasurable suffering pressing down on them, the power of Avalokiteshvara's wonderful wisdom can save them from the sufferings of the world. He is endowed with transcendental powers and widely practices upaya and wisdom. Throughout the lands and the ten directions, there is no region where he does not manifest himself. In many different kinds of evil circumstances, in the, in the realms of hell, hungry ghosts, or beasts, the sufferings of birth, old age, sickness, and death, all these he bit by bit wipes out. He of the true gaze, the pure gaze, the gaze of great and encompassing wisdom, the gaze of pity, the gaze of compassion. Constantly we implore him, constantly look up to him in reverence. His pure light, free of blemish, is a son of wisdom, dispelling all darkness. He can quell the wind and fire of misfortune and everywhere bring light to this world. The precepts from his compassionate body shake us like thunder. The wonder of his pitying mind is like a great cloud. He sends down the sweet dew, the dharma rain, to quench the flames of earthly desires. When lawsuits bring you before officials, when terrified in the midst of an army, think of the power of Avalokiteshvara, and hatred in all of its forms will be dispelled. Wonderful sound, Avalokiteshvara, Brahma sound, the sea-tide sound. They surpass those sounds of the world. Therefore, you should constantly think on them, from thought to thought, never entertaining doubt. Avilokiteshvara, pure sage to those in suffering, in danger of death. He can offer aid and support. Endowed with all benefits, he views living beings with compassionate eyes. The sea of his accumulated blessings is immeasurable. Therefore, you should bow your head to him. At that time, the Bodhisattva Dharanidhara immediately rose from his seat, advanced, and said to the Buddha, world-honored one, if there are living beings who hear this chapter on Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, on the freedom of his actions, his manifestation of a universal gateway, and his transcendental powers, it should be known that the benefits these persons gain are not few. When the Buddha preached this chapter on the universal gateway of Avalokiteshvara, a multitude of 84,000 persons in the assembly all conceived a determination to attain the unparalleled state of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. There you have it.
That is the whole chapter. We, I did not skip a word. Questions? So you should know, thank you for asking, traditionally this chapter, this little universal gateway chapter, is understood to be that version, the thousand armed eleven headed, because of that part about if, you, if they need a, a Brahma, or they need Chakra, they need Jesus, whatever, he'll impart, incarnate as that. That is what this is supposed to represent. In, in particular, the 11 heads, like these various incarnations or whatever you need. Um, by the way, you know, there is a big encyclopedia of this figure. And the encyclopedia goes through every single hand, what they're holding, what it represents, what the mantra is for that thing. I mean, it's in depth. And the idea is, is that each of those implements, whether it's a conch shell or a rosary or a bow and arrow or this... They all represent different things, and they all represent those saving abilities in this chapter. So you should know that traditionally when people, uh, uh, it was in the little red book. The little red book, the reason why it has the 11-headed thousand armed in the beginning is because that's who this is. There's other sutras where Avilokiteshvara appears, and he's like, you know, getting barren women pregnant. And it's that where it's more of this compassionate, motherly figure that you usually see. But in this, in this instance, when we're opening this universal gateway, which I want to talk about, it's this, um, this being. And unless there's any burning questions, you should know, uh, Jenny, you should know in particular, this figure, and in many ways even this chapter, is a... I'd say direct, maybe indirect, but I'd say direct response to um, the. Oh, interesting. There is a Indian poem called the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of, of the Lord, the Bhagavan, the Song of the Bhagavan, or the Bhagavan, uh, the Song of the Lord. This is a small poem that comes out of the. Mahabharata, this is a much larger poem, but this is a short poem that a lot of people read in India and outside of India. Um, it is about an archer, a warrior named Arjuna, who is on a battlefield, and he's looking out over uh, across the battlefield at his enemies, but many of his enemies are actually his cousins and family members that just happen to be sort of on the opposite side of the line. And he has this moment of like, I can't go fight. I can't go fight these people. I can't do all, you know, whatever. And his charioteer, his guy driving his chariot turns around and is like, oh, come on, you know, you can do it. And they kind of have this dialogue. And it eventually turns out that his charioteer, the guy driving him is actually Krishna, is actually God. But then the culmination of the Bhagavad Gita, I don't know if it's the last chapter or the, you know, it's towards the end. Um, the, the charioteer manifests himself in all these forms and like then he's Brahma then he's Shiva then he's Krishna then he's Vishnu then he's, then he's just Rama then he's all, all these different people all at once the message being sort of that all of these deities are ultimately the same just taking on different forms and different 
times for different people in different places. That's actually kind of the end message of the Bhagavad Gita regarding Krishna. And there are images, I wish I would have brought it one, but there are images of this moment in the Bhagavad Gita where it looks exactly like that. Thousand armed being, multiple heads, showing all the incarnations or the various incarnations of Krishna. So me being a kind of a historian of religion, scholar of religion, I'm like, oh, look, these are exact same, exact same thing. And if you trace um, even historically, they're coming from the same region. So they definitely seem to be in dialogue. So that's interesting. But that's another reason why this chapter is dealing with this Shiva-esque Avilokiteshvara. Shiva is traditionally the one with the, the bunch of arms in Indian mythology. Also showing his omnipotence, omnipotence, right? His ability to be everywhere, to do everything. So this is sort of like, well, let me just pause it. Questions, ideas? Yes. Yeah, um, I mean, this is, it's complicated. I think, you know, I mentioned this, um, uh, I mentioned this Ishvara Pranidana is a part of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. This is the surrendering to Ishvara. Uh, pranidana actually kind of ma- means a vow. And then we talked at length about Ishvara, this idea of a divinity, maybe an internal divinity, maybe an actual divinity. So in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, you were encouraged to make a vow or dedicate your actions, dedicate yourself entirely to Ishvara. I've not, I haven't mentioned in class... circle back yeah. with this idea and kind of in thinking of when we're putting everything out and asking for help I seem to think that as I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna although is manifesting God Krishna continues to say that God is in everything I am in you and so is there, and I don't even know how to articulate this, is there, it seems like there's a back and forth between yes, then there is this externalized, but that then it isn't. It's actually, the, it's pointed back to being within. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's that's at play in this this idea that Ishvara is this Lord, but it's sort of like my higher, better self, not my struggling, clinging self type of a thing. I was I was just gonna. So these are the traditional six paramitas that we talked at length about: giving, discipline, patience, determination, or zeal, meditation, and wisdom. We, we talk about these all the time. But there's actually 10 paramitas. And these four are like, you only get to find out about these later on, like once you've done some practice. And so actually these 10 paramitas, right? And the paramitas are these practices, practices of bodhisattvas. These are what bodhisattvas do. They practice giving. They practice moral discipline. They practice patience. They practice determination. They practice meditation. Practice wisdom. Practice skillful means, bala means power, actually. Like, and I mean, the Chinese is just li. Li just means power. Um, so bala, power, knowledge. And then the ninth paramita is pranidana. Pranidana is this old idea that goes back to, again, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and stuff like that. And the deal with Pranidhana in Patanjali was that it was always Ishvara Pranidhana. In fact, actually, I'm writing these separately, but there's, it's, just, it's a word, Ishvara Pranidhana, meaning vowing to the Lord or surrendering to the Lord. Look at that. It's a paramita of bodhisattvas to practice Pranidhana, which usually they just tra- translate as vow making the vow, the great vow, like the vow to save all sentient beings. But if you actually do a deeper dive into paramita study, you realize that this pranidana, pranidana is like Islam. It is like surrendering. Like uh, in the, what is it, in the, in the uh, 12 steps, you know, this uh, surrender to a higher power, that step of recovery. It's kind of like that, that there's a, this practice of surrendering yourself. And I would, I would, you know, it's funny. So I wanted to talk about these Dharma doors. And next week, the Dharma door next week is going to blow your mind. I swear it's so crazy, the sutra I have for next week. And I, I wanted to do it, but, but I got excited about this first. Um, but this, um, you know, I want to get to this idea of a Dharma door. But interesting that Bodhisattvas practice this surrendering. And, you know, there's a lot going on here. There's, there's part of us that maybe as Westerners or whatever, we have like a knee-jerk reaction to theism. And there's this kind of like any, any type of like belief in a higher God or surrendering. Like we as like good Thoreauian self, you know, reliant people are not going to rely on God, you know. Like, and I think there's a way in which this pranidana, this surrendering is to combat that really self-clinging attitude of, I don't need anything or anybody else. Like, I got this. That can be an illness. Literally leading to anxiety, stress, and death to think that you got this. So the surrendering can be, first of all, it can just be tremendous relief. Huge relief to just finally let go for a minute in that way. 
so it's an interesting practice of ego or non-ego to surrender in that way. Is, is that the same or different than devotion? Bhakti, perhaps. Well, there's this word bhakti, which is traditionally uh, devotion. So it is different. It is, because devotion, pranidana kind of means this vow. And you kind of um, make a vow, like, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get too religious in that sense of talking about what does a vow mean, you know, we could be here all night. Well, I was but... thinking of the word surrender, mm-hmm. and I, um, I'll think about it more, how is that different than devotion, but... Uh... You know, although, you know, it's interesting, you know, this word Islam, which means to surrender, so you have a whole religion based on this idea of pranidana, of like surrendering. Fascinating, right? A whole religion based on just that idea of giving yourself over to, you know, whatever, that which is not you. Um, the way I've seen all these work, I would say that pranidana is closer to that idea of surrendering because devotion is more, bhakti has more of like every morning I'm going to bring flowers to Krishna mm-hmm. and I'm going to be like devoted, bhakti devoted to him. So there's this way in which you're giving, you know, there is, but the pranidana is this actual submission that is, especially in this, in the yoga sutras, it is this like ego crushing activity. Okay. So, yes? I didn't know this a lot for actually hearing that. So that's why I actually asked this question. Wonderful. It feels really good. Um, and then the question is really so when we want to be compassionate with each other, um, and we're not, I mean, maybe we are like how how do we apply that to each other how do we bring compassion to each other <laughs> um i you know i don't i mean i let me do, uh, do it a good buddhist way <laughs> this is a non answer right this here. is my non answer <laughs> <laughs> are you people that are kirti i'm not a malakirti nor adhikarteshvara <laughs> Um, although, you know, the idea here is, is we are all potentially Avilokiteshvara in a certain w- way. Uh, if we get out of our own way, we would realize our Avilokiteshvara in this in that way. I was, in regards to that, I would just say, oh, you know, oh, how to be compassionate. Oh, my, my non-answer uh, no, no, you, call, you called me. You were like, <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, I don't know in the, in the positive sense of what does it mean, what does it look like to be compassionate. I'm not entirely, I mean, I know it when I see it, and I know it when I do it, but, you know, but in the opposite way of the Buddhist answer is, is like the opposite of that is being, you know, the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, or desire, pushing away, and just delusion. Acting from greed, acting from hatred, and acting out of delusion are not compassionate. <laughs> so you could flip that, right? And then say, oh, okay, so non-greedy, non-hate-filled, non-delusory behavior is what would be compassionate. <laughs> yes. It's going back to what Noam mentioned about the surrender, and I think then part of your answer was you surrender to something. Uh, it, 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 I'm just wondering what that would be. 
is it simply surrendering the sense of self or is there some Mm -hmm. Surrendering to, to the world, to something. My feeling from a Buddhist point of view is that it's just the act itself that is of importance. But these things can be of tremendous help in doing that. You, there might be, you might be here, that the ability to just surrender yourself to nothing. And I don't even mean emptiness, shunyata, or anything like that, but just the act, great. But most people need uh, help in that way. Is it surrendering <laughs> to these teachings? Is it surrendering to... No, to that's what I would mean. I would say it's not. just the act of the surrender with, and that it, to Avilokiteshvara, to Amitabha Buddha, to Bhaisajya Guru, this is Bhaisajya, by the way, that would just be a stepping stone meaning that it's easier if you have something to, to direct it to. And I'm, this is from firsthand experience. It's easier when there's a, a mantra and a statue to go with it. It aids the whole thing. I've done pilgrimages up mountaintops where you're doing the three steps in a bow. You know this, where you, 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 take, you go one, two, three, and then fully prostrate out, and then get up. <laughs> And then take three steps and then fully prostrate yourself out. And you do that. I mean, this was a pilgrimage up a mountain. It took hours, three, four, five hours, three steps in a bow, three steps in a bow, all the way up. There's a guy at a monastery up north that he did three steps in a bow all the way up the California coast took for, to, to protest Vietnam. I think the Vietnam War was over by the time he finished. <laughs> Literally. Maybe he did it. No. Um, Anyways, yeah, so I see all of this as upaya in that way that it, it's AIDS, but at no point is Buddhism saying the answer is to surrender yourself to Avilokiteshvara, and that'll get you in. Avilokiteshvara is a stepping stone. Yeah, it, that's, and I don't think I'm off base saying that in that way. Is the, um, the idea of pran, whatever, pradana? Yep, pranidana. Is number nine? Um, is number that nine. like the ultimate sort of detachment? Like you just attached to sort of the will of the dharma or well, the let things me, around no, you? Let me, let me, I want to expand on that. Thank that you. No, no, no. I want to expand on what this is, what's happening here. So I've talked, the Vimalakirti Sutra allowed us to talk about the idea of identifying with the mortal, what I was calling the mortal vaginally born body. We all identify with the mortal, vaginally born body, or what we imagine to be the vaginally born body, right? And insofar as we identify with this, right, then, you know, if you identify with your physical body, I've got bad news for you, right? You already know the bad news, right? But that, you, <laughs> so... The idea is, is that we are clinging to this as the self, and that's causing the suffering. Buddhism in general is saying don't cling at all, at all. Don't identify at all and don't cling at all. And that's Buddha mind, would be non-clinging, totally non-clinging, totally non-identified. But there's sort of many a stage between fully clinging suffering self and Buddhahood. 
And so the idea is, is that this is potentially a step towards identifying with something Ishvara, with a greater sense of self, not the mortal, vaginally born physical body, but the enlightened mind, perhaps, identifying with that. So, oh, no, I'm not going to identify with this because the Buddha taught me the truth that I already knew, which is that this is always changing. In fact, everything's always changing. But there's this stream of consciousness, if you will, a consciousness. And it is, you know, the, the Zen tradition is almost founded entirely on trying to point at consciousness. And so you get these questions where the monk asks the, asks the Buddha or the, the Zen master, what is the Buddha nature? And the Zen master will say, what's asking? The notion being that that which asks, that, that's it. That's the enlightened mind. Not this, not even the discursive thinking mind, but that curious mind, that wants to know mind, that bigger mind. That's, and you could identify with that. Rather than this, and rather than the discursive mind, you could identify with your Buddha mind, with your enlightened self. And so again, I would suggest that maybe this surrendering or this vowing to the larger self is just that stepping stone towards not identifying with what you have been samskarically conditioned to identify with, which is the mortal, vaginally born body. So I throw that out there as a little pranidana, like that's the stepping stone towards, oh, I'll identify with Avilokiteshvara, and then of ultimately not identify with anything and have a totally liberated, I don't know, just be totally liberated. All right, we got to talk about the gateway. The, The Puman, the universal gateway. So at the end, it said it. This chapter opens up the universal gateway. Um... I want to hear if there's any thoughts on this, but because we only have a few minutes, I want to just dump it out there. This is like Mahayana, what we're talking about here. When we're talking about Pu, uh, Vasha, Vashva, I forget the Sanskrit for universal. This, in Chinese, they call it Pu. This is, now I don't want to confuse anybody. If, if, if you haven't heard this, don't get confused, but... There's a word in English that means this idea of universal, and it's the word Catholic. But the Catholics just took this word, which means applicable to all, universally applicable. That's what Catholic means. And the reason why the Catholic Church calls itself that is because they imagine that Christianity is universally applicable to all people. And so they're out there with, they're out there, they're in, you name it, if there's a country, they're there <laughs> trying to convince people of Christianity because they think it's universally applicable, all right? Buddhism thinks the same thing. In particular, Mahayana thinks the same thing. And when it talks about the universal gateway, what the chapter means is, is that this This little gateway that I read, attempting to open, is a gateway. What they're talking about is that it's a gateway that could save the whole world. That's what they mean. And what they mean is, when they're talking about this language of, oh, and if somebody needs a chakra, 
then Avilokiteshvara becomes a chakra. And if they need a Shiva, it becomes a Shiva or Krishna. And that's where I made the joke. Oh, and if they need Jesus, he'll appear as Jesus. What this is saying is, is that anywhere saving happens, right? Anywhere the Savior appears, it's always Avilokiteshvara. Or we'll just call it. We Buddhists call it Avilokiteshvara. And I don't know if you caught the very interesting part where it said, and if people need a Buddha, Avilokiteshvara incarnates as a Buddha for the people that need that. So Amitabha Buddha is potentially just Avilokiteshvara in disguise. Even though all, every time you see Avilokiteshvara in the crown, he, he she has a little uh, Amitabha. And that's because traditionally, Avilokiteshvara is Amitabha's right-hand man. Mahastama Prapta, Bodhisattva Mahastama Prapta, is Amitabha Buddha's left-hand man. And so you have this trinity of Amitabha Buddha, Avilokiteshvara, and Mahastama Prapta. However, this just told us that, guess what? Bodhisattvas are actually... I mean, I don't know, I, I want to, I just, I kind of want to be real blunt about what this is saying. The universal gateway is saying that Avilokiteshvara is the God that everybody needs. Because if you need a Mother Mary figure with a baby, boom, there you go, Avilokiteshvara. If you need a warrior with a bow and an arrow that's going to conquer all enemies, boom, there's an Avilokiteshvara for you. In fact, Avilokiteshvara can come in any form you need. And so we got it. We got it all for you. We've got it for everyone is what this is saying. This universal gateway. The, uh, so 2,000 years ago, they were saying Avilokiteshvara could save everybody. Because Avilokiteshvara could turn into whatever anybody needs to be saved. That's, how, that's why it would work that way. Right? When... When historically did Avilokiteshvara actually show up? You know, time-wise, did way predate Buddhism? I mean, you said. Oh no, no, no! no. Only after in, in... the concept of a Ishvara, yeah. which, uh, to my knowledge, there are no images of. It's that a concept, way back, way back. and that's yeah. where Avilokiteshvara seems to be this interesting Buddhist twist on the notion of the Ishvara, mm-hmm. it of of a of a deity, a personal deity that looks down. And so there was Ishvara already happening. You know, Buddhists, if you really study Buddhism, they're always taking interesting things that were going on and putting this like Buddhist twist on it. Just again, like Shiva is represented with all the arms, incarnating, and then the the Buddhists are like, yeah, yeah, Avilokiteshvara does that too. (laughs) In fact, Shiva is Avilokiteshvara. Yes? Both, at both, anything and everything you can think of. This is this deity or this energy or this whatever is functioning, and it's really dynamic. That's that's the idea. It's it's almost like it's really almost like this Avilokiteshvara is like transcends Mahayana and Buddhism and becomes its own 
religion. I mean, I, that word's dangerous, but its own cult for sure. Where it's like, yeah, we're we're we don't need Buddhas, we don't need sutras, we don't need anything. We just need Avilokiteshvara. You should all know. I can't leave here without saying it. You know, the famous Heart Sutra, the star of the Heart Sutra, if you know it, is Avilokiteshvara. Avilokiteshvara is the one in the Heart Sutra that realizes that all five skandhas are empty. So Avilokiteshvara is huge because of the Heart Sutra, huge because of this chapter, huge because you, you will see more representations of Avilokiteshvara than anybody else, period. Just, it's just the most dominant Buddhist cult out there. In fact, there's a whole um, uh, interesting... Uh, I, I can't... Uh, how can I summarize this? There is only one bodhisattva, one Mahayana being that makes its way into Theravada, and it's Avilokiteshvara. Even the Theravadins can't resist Avilokiteshvara. <laughs> and they come up with all of, the, oh, it's actually Maitreya, the future Buddha, making some appearances, like because they, they can't give up their strict uh, mythology about there only being one Buddha and all of this stuff. But even they can't resist Avilokiteshvara. Um, when I think of, or when I say that in modern China, Japan, uh, Taiwan, Mongolia as well, I've seen it. You see these Mother Mary figures, and they're, in many ways, they're not saying it's not Mary. They're, they're just like, yep, that is an exact, um, uh, it's a great example of what I mean by this universal gateway, where they're, it's not just that 2,000 years ago they said Avilokiteshvara could save the world. The Chinese are still saying that Avilokiteshvara could save the world. That this being could convert all Catholics in that sense. Like that they, if the Catholics were like, oh, that looks just like Mary and it makes me feel the same way, screw it. <laughs> Avilokiteshvara. Like almost all of a sudden, right, all Catholics become devoted to Avilokiteshvara. All Buddhists are all, like, there's a way in which there's still a notion that Avilokiteshvara could save the world. That would be this universal gateway or the meaning of this universal gateway. That, yeah, this emptiness stuff, it's pretty heavy and not everybody gets, like, either not everybody gets it, and then even if they get it, it's not always everybody's cup of tea. Sometimes hearing everything is empty could be a little depressing, right? So that's maybe not for everybody. And then it's like, uh, how about uh, five hours straight of meditation on your breath? Five hours straight of meditation on your breath, anyone? All right, maybe that's not for everybody. So the idea is there's all these different things, but Avilokiteshvara is potentially for Everybody. Potentially. Yes. Or, yeah. Hi. Do you, is the Mahayana concept that, that all sentient beings need to be aware of and call upon Avalokiteshvara or, or can Avalokiteshvara save everyone without being hmm. worshipped or called upon? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I'm just trying to recall if I've ever seen that take place. I don't, to my knowledge, I've never seen it take place that Avilokiteshvara jumps on the scene unprovoked. <laughs> I don't know. That, I mean, I wouldn't put it past Avilokiteshvara to do such a thing, but I don't know of any instances where it's not provoked in that way, that somebody hasn't been like, Avilokiteshvara. Yeah. Could 
mission of Sensuity. Oh, like in a Mormon way. In a Mormon way. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, on that note, so if you don't know, the Mormons are actively out there saving all of our souls and baptizing us, unbeknownst to us. Um, yeah, you know, the, the Mormons have this whole thing where they baptize the dead, so they do, that's why they're so hot on doing genealogy stuff, because they actually do all this uh, retroactive baptizing, baptizing and stuff. Anyways, in many ways, the Buddhists are out there constantly calling on Avalokiteshvara to save us all, unbeknownst to us. Yeah, I mean, Avalokiteshvara is, like I said, yeah, Bodhisattva of compassion, but is the savior being, like, savior being is not putting it, I mean, that's putting it lightly. It's really deep in this notion that that's what, Avalokiteshvara is in the business of saving people, like, from bad situations, dire situations, all of that. So, <coughs> Vicky. Absolutely. And, and that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. It's about selfless mm-hmm. service. Yep. Yep. So that's why I say there's like this deep connection between the two, and you could do a kind of like a back and forth comparison. But. Um, uh, I, I do want to emphasize this point, though, one more time about that we're all Avilokiteshvara. Mm-hmm. This is a like. Once you get into the Mahayana, the literature, that is the, the goal is this kind of realization of like, oh, like I've been clinging to myself so much I didn't realize that the reason why this being has so many heads and so many arms is because, look, Avilokiteshvara. But when Avilokiteshvara is split up into a bunch of clinging selves, it's called samsara and it's full of suffering. Right? But that's the idea is... Um, yeah, I have mentioned, um, I mentioned the other day about the first chapter of a Mahayana Sutra. It's like the sutra in encapsulation, the whole sutra in encapsulation. That's a little rule of thumb. I'll give you another little rule of thumb for reading Mahayana Sutras. Um, so the Heart Sutra is a great example. Um, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva was practicing the profound Pranyaparamita and clearly saw that the five skandhas are empty and thus overcome came all suffering. Avalokiteshvara turns to Shariputra. We know Shariputra, that guy. It's like, hey, Shariputra, right? Form is no different than emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form, right? Sensations, perception, volition, and consciousness, they're also like that. Totally empty, right? I'm not going to do the whole sutra. That is class. But so... When you read the Heart Sutra, and again, this is a little rule of thumb for all kind of Mahayana Sutras. When you first start reading the Mahayana Sutra, there's you, the reader, and there's the Buddha, Avalokiteshvara, and Shariputra. And you are reading about the Buddha, Avalokiteshvara, and Shariputra. There's a moment if you're reading, I don't want to say properly, but 
in a certain way, let's put it that way, where when Avilokiteshvara says, Shariputra, there's a moment where you identify as Shariputra and realize, oh, Avilokiteshvara is talking to me. I'm not reading about Avilokiteshvara talking to Shariputra. I'm Shariputra. And so Avilokiteshvara says, hey, Shariputra, form is no different from emptiness. So he's saying it to me. Then there's a, a moment when you go deeper and you identify not just with Shariputra, you identify with Avilokiteshvara, where you realize that when you are reading the Heart Sutra, you are practicing the profound Pranyaparamita. Presently, you're doing it. So guess who you are in that moment when you're reading the Heart Sutra? You're Avilokiteshvara. And then the final movement is when you identify as the Buddha. So you see there's that process where it's you, Shariputra, Avalokiteshvara, and the Buddha. You identify Shariputra, and Avalokiteshvara is talking to you. Identify as Avalokiteshvara, and then finally identify as the enlightened being itself from the wisdom that's in the sutra. See how that worked? First you're you and Shariputra, Shariputra, but then they start to collapse. And there's a way in which all Mahayana sutras do that. In fact... Um, you know, on my website, there's like f- a four-part series I did on the Lotus Sutra from a number of months ago. If you're into this chapter, go, you can go ahead and listen to those. But I talk about how the Lotus Sutra also works like that. That when you first start it, you're you in the Saha world reading a book. But there is a moment where if you give yourself over to Mahayana Sutras, they are visualizations. And you will eventually be on the vulture's peak. And you will see all the bodhisattvas and the shravakas and there's the Buddha. And then eventually you too will become one of the shravakas in the sutra. It's like, you know, a, a never-ending story kind of thing, right? It's like, oh, I fell into the story. So uh, if I, yeah, I've mentioned this many times, but these Mahayana sutras are much more mystical than your Theravada discourses. Your Theravada discourses are exactly that. Sit like this, breathe like this, think about that. Good luck. <laughs> They're fully instructive. These, you, you go looking, where, where does he tell me how to meditate? How many breaths am I supposed to do? You, if you go looking for that type of instruction in Mahayana, you're doing it wrong. You've missed it. These are actually visualization mental journeys waiting to happen. So, um, that's it. Any questions, ideas? Yes. So, uh, so when you do that, uh, I want some instructions. <laughs> do, you, do you like sit cross-legged and put some flowers or whatever? No, no. Is there like special? All I can tell you is, is that when you read it, I mean, and, and I this is true. I mean, someday maybe I'll do a talk about this, but I, you know, there's this this word meditation that we have in English, but it's a Latin word, and the word meditatio. What it meant was actually originally in the, in the Christian Catholic context, meditation was a word for reading the Bible. That was it. It meant reading the Bible. But it was literally like a visualization reading. So not just reading aloud, but like when they talk about the, the passion narrative and the, the leading up to the crucifixion, the idea is, is that in the reading, you're supposed to be like, Oh, wow, oh, the blood's coming out of his... Oh, no, no! Like, like, you're supposed to be going through it. And the idea is, is that the Bible, Lotus Sutra, all of these are portals 
that will take you to these events that are happening. Like they're timeless, eternal events that are taking place. And these are ways to get to them. And you get to them by putting your mind in a certain formation that is formed by reading these words. So my suggestion, if you would like to go deeper with those types of meditations, is you read it very closely. You don't just read it like at a far. You, if it says diamond-covered lotus flowers, you, you're picturing the glistening diamonds on a lotus flower. If you follow the directions and visualize what it's telling you, the idea is, is that we have portals in our mind that are accessible through dharmas, through ideas or concepts. So if you're looking for magical portals out here, maybe, maybe not. But in your mind, there's many. And that's these dharma doors that we're interested in going through. So yeah, it's just, yeah, deep, deep, like when you read it, see it. That's all I can say. It's a very funny repetition. It's why I wanted to read it out loud. It feels like a magical spell. Yes. I, in fact, I wasn't going to, I was going to jump right to the super cool Dharma Door Sutra next week. It's wild. I was not going to do this one. <laughs> and I wasn't going to do this one because of my own, here, my own kind of biased against pure land devotional stuff. Uh, you know me. I love all the crazy philosophy stuff. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm usually here doing. But I actually caught myself and was like, why don't, why don't I want to do the Lotus Sutra with that section? Why not? I read it out loud to myself and flipped. And I was like, oh, I got to do this. Like, because the repetitions are rhythmic. And forget about it. If you hear these in Sanskrit, transcendent. Because it's even more, these, Burton Watson's translation is like pretty good in terms of capturing a, a cadence. But yeah, so that cadence alone, even if you don't know what these things are and you just hear them in Sanskrit, it's like, oh my God. It's like, so that, yeah, I guess um, I want to say this. That there's, I have my biases that wants to keep everything kind of intellectual but I myself am like moved by the non-intellectual, like just hearing the words or just the imagery, all of that. So, um, so yeah, I got excited to do this and then was very excited to read it in its entirety for you so you could hear. And that's the way they operate. The reason why they, these exist is because people sit there just going, boom, just chanting it over and over and over again, you know, for relief of suffering, whatever. So, and actually these two, of course, are talismans. Good luck. Yeah. Do you know where we might be able to hear a recording of it in Sanskrit? Um, not, I looked high and low for this in Sanskrit. You can find like hard suture in Sanskrit pretty easily. I don't know. It's the internet type thing, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be good to get a library of uh, sounds together, though. Yeah, but. So if you find one. You let us know. I'm going to look, too. All right, folks. That, oh, no, no, one more. I can't. Can I? Oh, another one. No, no, no. This is, this is like 
Imperative. Imperative. Um, Avilokiteshvara has a mantra. And if you don't know Avilokiteshvara's mantra, I basically just screw, almost screwed you guys. I almost <laughs> just completely set you up without, like, you know, what you need. So this is Avilokiteshvara's mantra. Now the Heart Sutra, uh, is the Heart Sutra's mantra. It's a Heart Sutra. This is Avilokiteshvara's mantra. Om, we know Om. Chum is the way you end a lot of mantras. It's kind of like a finisher. Uh, you might also sometimes find Svaha, very similar. Mani and Padme. Padme is the lotus. And a Mani is a wish-fulfilling jewel. Right. And so it's usually like Om, they usually translate as praise, the jewel in the lotus. And the jewel in the lotus is usually Avilokiteshvara. Like the lotus and the jewel in the lotus, that's Avilokiteshvara. It's Mm, depends on who you talk to. It's actually praise the jeweled lotus. And then some people, no, 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 it's the jewel in the lotus. Again, maybe it's both. Maybe, you know, a bunch of things. But Om Mani Padmi Hom, that's Avilokiteshvara's mantra. So if you are interested in a little pranidana, to Avilokiteshvara, Om Mani Padmi Hom would be the, the appropriate way to get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, Om Mani Padmi Hom, thank you all very much. Thank you.